Shall we all look to the Lord in prayer? Heavenly Father, we come before your throne of grace, knowing that you are the most high God and at the same time the most merciful Father. You are the God who is strong and almighty. At the same time, you are kind and gracious. We don't understand this joining of the two attributes in you which amazes us and always draws us to seek your face and we pray this morning that you reveal your glory through the proclamation of your word and we pray that you manifest your power in our hearts the devil hates what i'm going to preach our flesh may find it difficult to digest the truths but as we have heard last Sunday, that your word is sharper than double-edged sword, piercing, discerning the intentions and the purposes, exposing the innermost part of our soul that no man can ever dive in and comprehend. But you are the God who knows all things and all things are laid before you. You know every brother and sister sitting here you don't look at us the way we look at each other because when we look at each other, we only see the skin and the body and the continents. But you are the God who knows what's happening on the inside. We thank you that you know all things and you can do all things for our good and for your glory. So we welcome the work of the Holy Spirit in the midst of us and we plead with you that you have mercy on us. That's the only thing we cry out to you this morning, have mercy, have mercy, have mercy on us. Enlighten our minds and speak to our hearts and honor your name. In the name of our beloved Savior, Jesus Christ, we offer this prayer with thanksgiving. Amen. Amen. Let's turn our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. God willing, I'll be finishing chapter 4 this week and then we will be launching into chapter 5 the next week and I told you last uh, week and that's a serious exhortation that the author has given in chapter 4 from verses 1 through 13 and we have looked at uh, two exhortations that the author has been encouraging his recipients and also through them to us today and we see those two exhortations Hebrews chapter 4 verse 1 therefore while the promise of entering his rest still stands let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it and then we have seen another exhortation verse 11 let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience and after giving this warning cautions exhortations he now turns to comfort and encouragement which is very interesting that we find throughout the book of hebrews giving warnings exhortations cautions and again turning to comfort soothing uplifting encouraging words and that is what we see in hebrews chapter 4 from verses uh, 
14 through 16, these words of comfort and encouragement. Martin Luther, the great reformer, pointed to this text saying that after terrifying us, in the previous verses, after terrifying us, the apostle now comforts us. After pouring wine into a wound, he now pours in oil. Very interesting, those words, and that's absolutely true. And I told you that these believers in this uh, first century were shaken by the persecution. They found great joy in the newfound faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they had to go through persecution, afflictions, because of which they were tempted to go back to Judaism. And the author of Hebrews giving them warnings and cautions and encouragement and comfort to draw them back to their firm foundation, and that is Jesus Christ. And one of the arguments that we see in the book that he argues essentially that Jesus is the high priest. And why is he saying this? Because in Judaism, they counted priests as the mediators between God and people, and they are the ones who are very crucial. And uh, the author of Hebrews here argues and reasons that Jesus is the great and better high priest than the Old Testament priest. In fact, the high priestly ministry in the new covenant is a great anchor to our souls. And that is the reasoning that we find and he encourages them to persevere in faith. Now he gives a reason. How is it reasonable? How is it reasonable that the high priestly work of Christ is supreme? For us, the first reason that he gives here is that because Christ is a great high priest who ascended to heaven. We see here that in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, he says that, shall we all read this together? Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. What is interesting that we find is that he says we have a great high priest. Why is he using the word great high priest? In comparison to the Old Testament high priests who were not great. They were weak. We will see the next Sunday how fragile they were and how Jesus is the better and the great high priest. And one reason he gives how Jesus is a great high priest is because he has passed through the heavens. How has Jesus passed? Through the heavens. Now it is speaking about the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he has finished his work on the cross. And he ascended to heaven. As a victorious Lord. So when you see these words. He has passed through the heavens. These words are words of hope. Words of victory. Look at this high priest. He has been victorious. And because of that. This is what you can do. In order for you to be convinced that this is speaking about the ascension of Christ, the first chapter proves it in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. And this is what I would love to do throughout this sermon. There are lots of scriptures that I would be covering mostly from the book of Hebrews. So whenever there is a verse that comes here, let us all read together. And let me not repeat again and again, let us all read together. Shall we read this? Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is exactly what 
the author is saying here that he passed through the heavens. What did he do? He had made purification for sins. He shed his blood. He offered his body. He satisfied the divine justice of God. And after that, he rose from the dead. And after that, he passed through the heavens. He ascended into the heaven. And he was seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. That majesty on high, right hand, all, speak, all speaks about the glorious, invincible, all-surpassing victory that Christ has attained for us. So because this is what Christ did, what is the focus? He says in verse 14, part B, let us hold fast to our confession. Don't give up your faith. Yes, life is hard. Yes, temptations are fearful. Yet there are challenges. But don't give up. Because Christ himself has suffered. He died, he rose, and he ascended, and is seated at the right hand of the majesty. So there is hope. Because the God in whom you believe is not the God of failure. Not the God of weakness. Not the God of helplessness. He is the God of victory. Because of that, let us hold fast to our confession. Persevere. Hold on. Don't give up. Your faith in the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Endure. Hold on. And that is what he encourages. And then secondly, he says, how Christ's high priestly ministry is a great anchor to our soul. He says that Christ is a great high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. He says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Hebrews 4, 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Because Christ is a high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. Now what is the focus there? The focus here is that let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace this is the hope that we have and let me tell you this one verse that we find here has been one of the great comforts and encouragements to all the saints throughout all the centuries and at the same time one of the complex verses in the bible that has confused many that has confused many so let me deal with the complexity before going to the comfort and the complexity that we find here is the temptation of Christ. Because the scripture says here in verse 15 that, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. It says, But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Now let me define what temptation is because this is one of the key words that we find here in all my study about what temptation is in all my more than 25 years in all my reading of so many books i have never found a beautiful precise concise powerful description of what temptation is than what i find in the words of the 17th century puritan writer john owen and this is what John Owen describes. In fact, if you, he has written a book of uh, this much size almost on temptation. 
You see this? How thin it is? How thick it is? These guys are amazing. The way they delved into the word of God. And this is what he defines temptation. Hear this. Anything, any state, any condition, that upon any account whatever has a force or efficacy to seduce, to draw the mind and heart of a man from its disobedience, which God requires of him into any sin, in any degree of it, whatever. And that is what temptation is. To simplify what he says, because he's a 17th century guy, these were men of death. The men of shallowness cannot comprehend in one reading because we are used to all short videos, short article, all short, short, short. That's the reason our Christian growth is also short. Right? We are not growing stronger in the Lord. But what he says is that in simple words, anything, it may be good or bad, has the power to draw you away from your obedience to Christ is what temptation is. Stephen is better than John Owen, right? <laughs> How he simplifies things. Anything that has the power to draw you away from your obedience to the supremacy of God is what temptation is. That could be porn. That could be your children. That could be your job that you are working for or that could be your family. And sometimes church also can play a role. Anything that is drawing you away from your obedience to Christ has the power of temptation to seduce you. So we need to be careful of any evil and at the same time any good that is not taking precedence over God. God alone has complete supremacy in all things. So why this struggle? Why people have struggled? Because some people who study the Bible very diligently have this question. People who don't read the Bible carefully have no question, no doubts. They are easy, cozy, wonderful people who have no problems. But people who study their Bible well have wrestled with this. What is the wrestling here? If Christ is tempted, how can he be God? If Christ is tempted, how can he be God? Why? Because James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted. Hear the face very carefully. God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. So what is one of the great characteristics and attributes of God? According to James 1.13 That God cannot be tempted. But the scripture says in Matthew 4.1 Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And even Hebrews 4.15 says that we are looking at now one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. So God cannot be tempted. Jesus faced temptation. Therefore, Jesus cannot be God. Was the argument the people who were critically reading their Bibles. Now what they have failed to understand is that the same Bible also reveals that there are two aspects of temptation. Two aspects of temptation. Not every temptation we need to understand is spoken in the same sense. Two aspects of temptation. One is the internal enticement. 
which is the inner sinful passions burning to commit sin which all of us struggle with that inner sinful passions and burnings that is exactly what james meant here when he said god cannot be tempted the previous verse says in the the, the latter verse says in james 1:14 but each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire so he's speaking about the sinful desires within so when the bible says god cannot be tempted it means god had no sinful passions within he had no inner lust there are no evil desires in god if god had evil desires inner lust sinful passions he cannot be god because he is sinful and the bible says very clearly that god had no such things and that is the context he is speaking about the inward lust but when the bible speaks about jesus facing temptation it speaks about external force external allurement or enticement it is outward it is not inward and that is what we say in matthew 4:1 when jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil it is a devil who came and he tempted externally jesus was not inwardly burning to sin against god just as sinful human beings do so please do understand that james 1:14 addresses inner sinful passions which christ did not inherit when we people say that we are born we are born in sin with adamic nature but christ was not born in sin with adamic nature he was born holy and that's the reason one of the reasons why christ was virgin birth he was conceived by the holy spirit he did not conceived by the two physical union of man and woman and that's one of the reasons that christ did not inherit adamic nature and the bible says in hebrews 4:15 clearly that he was without sin he was without sin now there is another complexity when you talk like this that christ is god and his temptation was external it was not internal so don't think that christ being tempted is not that he is not god he it only speaks about the external temptation so now the question comes here is if christ is god then how can his temptation be real if christ is god how his temptations can be genuine and one of the pressing questions that people struggle with is could christ have sinned could christ have sinned in his humanity now there is no one word answer to this because any one word answer confuses people then clarifies to them so i will share with you three factors that we need to understand when we deal with this complex question but before that i want to give you a caution here there are two problems whenever the deity of christ and the humanity of christ has been dealt with with regards to sin and temptation and it is undermining the sinlessness of the lord jesus the first problem is undermining the sinlessness of the lord jesus christ which means that people have stretched the humanity of christ to such an extent that they see that christ could sin and they undermine his sinlessness which is dangerous now it is a very tensed factor that we need to understand the deity of christ and the humanity of christ if you stretch either one too much you will fall into heresy 
And that, what, that is what has happened throughout the history. So some people undermine his sinlessness, so they say that he could have sinned. And some others undermine his humanity, which is they undermine his temptations. And because they undermine his temptations, they see him as just sinless. He had no struggle like us. Yes, Christ became a human being, but he is God. He could have just overcome the temptations unlike us. So they undermine his temptations. That's another problem. Undermining his sinlessness, undermining his temptations. Both are dangerous because the Bible doesn't speak in that sense. So what are the three factors that we need to understand? Quickly, let me go through that before I jump into the sympathy of the Lord Jesus Christ. The three factors are this. And I, I bring all these three factors from the book of Hebrews. First thing we need to understand is that Christ was holy and sinless. Christ was holy and sinless. We see that is written in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 26. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest... Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Do you see the description of who Christ is? One of the ways that we can learn to praise God is by studying his attributes so that we can praise God. We know more of our problems than the attributes of God because of which we pray more than praise more. Here it says who Christ is. He is a God who is a high priest, who is holy, who is innocent. He never sinned. He didn't never have the experience of sin. If you can ask someone, you know, what is the experience of sin? We can say, ah, I, I knew what is the experience of pride. I know the experience of hatred. I hate it. I know how it is. I know the experience of sexual immorality. People can talk about it. But Christ was innocent. Innocent doesn't mean ignorance of sin. It is lack of experience of sin. And that is what Christ was. Innocent and stained. And it says that he became like us. Yet the Bible says that he was separated from sinners. He was wholly separated. You can't compare him with sinful people. At the same time, Bible also says that he has become like one among us. We will see that later. But the Bible says he was separated from sinners. And exalted above the heavens. So the Bible argues that Christ was fully God and fully man at the same time. He was human at the same time he was holy. Now you need to understand in Hebrews 7.26 all these attributes that you see high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens it explains that Christ was like this as a human. Right? Now comes the second one. Christ was holy and sinless, the second factor that we see is Christ's temptation was authentic in his humanity. Yes, he was holy, stainless, blameless, beyond approach, no, no, beyond reproach, but it was, his temptations were authentic. It was not a pretension, people. It was real. When he faced temptation to sin, it was real. 
That's the tension we see in the Bible that the Bible speaks about. Now there are two things that we see when the Bible speaks about Christ's temptation was authentic. First is that Hebrews 2.14 which we have seen previously that Christ became a human being in flesh and blood just like us. 100%. He was in flesh and blood like us. It was not that he was appearing like human which was one of the Gnostic philosophies in the first century, which if you see in the Bible, that was a big concern. And the apostles were confronting that false teaching. No, Christ was not an appearance in flesh. He was really in flesh. And that is what exactly we see in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Observe the word, same things. In other words, you can say that Christ became in flesh and blood in every respect like us. Just like we are in flesh and blood, Christ's blood and flesh was like that. His flesh did not have a better flesh. His blood was not a better blood. It was exactly like you and me. Maybe if there was a test done in the first century, maybe it could have been O negative. Why do I say that? Because that's mine. <laughs> Hebrews 4.15 says, Christ became in flesh and blood just like us. Hebrews 4.15 says that one who in every respect, he not only became a human being in every respect like us, it says in 4.15, and we need to accept people what the Bible says. It says that one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. How are you tempted? That's how Christ was tempted. That's exactly the author of Hebrews. He's speaking here. He became in flesh and blood exactly like us. And he faced temptations in every respect. Just like you and I do. Now here is a caution that I would like to give you based on these words. You know what is that? Christ's divinity or Christ's deity, that Christ is fully God, did not diminish his humanity. That real temptations and weaknesses that a man faces. Let me repeat once again. Christ's divinity did not diminish or did not eliminate, did not remove human temptations and struggles. It was all real. It was genuine. It was authentic. His temptations was in full force. As a human, he was fully blown by the temptations that we face. What a great encouragement it is. One of the wonderful, faithful, solid theologians of our time is Wayne Grudem. And this is what he describes also. Based on what the scripture says. No theologian has any right to say anything except what the Bible says. And this is what he declares according to the word of God. He says here, scripture clearly affirms that Jesus never committed sin. It clearly affirms. But it also affirms that his temptations were real. Not just play acting. It's not that uh, I'm a human now and humans faces weaknesses and temptations, right? So let me act as if I am suffering from temptations. 
it was not a drama it was not a play acting oh just because i am human i have to suffer with that and he put on a show on that no 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 it was all genuine authentic and real that is what the bible says we see this very clearly christ faced temptations from the devil where do you see that in matthew chapter 4 one thing that i don't understand when i became a christian and when i was reading is how could this foolish devil could talk to the god of the heavens and the earth you bow down and worship me and i will give you all the glory of the kingdoms his temptations were real he was tempted by the devil and many people think that that was the only time jesus faced the temptation if you read luke carefully it says that the devil was waiting for an opportune time every time the opportunity came he was bombarded with temptation just like us he was tempted from people oh my goodness if you look it look at the gospels and you see how he was tempted sometimes actually he was tempted even to become the king do you remember that people tried to make him the king and what did the lord jesus do he escaped if you and i were there we would have done oh god is prospering me exalting me hallelujah and we go on giving testimonies to all the churches god has made me the king but here jesus knew his boundary very carefully and he did not yield to the temptation and the greatest temptation that christ faced was to turn away from obeying the father when it came to the pinnacle of his life in facing the excruciating pain on the cross it was so intense you and i might have never gone through that people you see the agony of temptation that he faced in this few words luke 22 verse 44 luke 22 hebrews also says the same thing but i will recollect later luke 22 44 you know what it says and being in agony and it was real agony people he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like now please when you read the bible observe similes i remember hearing one of asena sermon it says in telugu ni chimata raktamuga marine chimata raktamuga marine that's false why it is a simile observe carefully became like it doesn't say became blood the song says became blood the bible doesn't say it became blood it says became like bread what happened you are sweating like blood flowing out of your mouth or blood flowing out of your body what does it mean it is sweating profusely so his agony was so intense that the bible says he was sweating he was sweating with agony and anxiety have you ever sweat i know that we don't sweat in the modern generation we only sweat when it is in summer because of heat we don't do such exercise to sweat but his sweat here was out of anxiety and great drops of blood like great drops of blood falling to the ground which means he was profusely sweating from his body and they were drenching the ground can you imagine the intensity of anxiety and the temptation he faced to go away from the cross his temptation was real so much so that mark 14:35 to 36 we hear these weak words from the beloved savior and yet he went on pressed on 
fulfill the Father's will. But still you see what he said. He fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. <laughs> Lord, I don't want to go to the cross because I know what it was to face your wrath on the cross. I know the humiliation, the crucifixion, the unbearable agony, hanging on the cross, facing your judgment upon me. When I think about it, I dread it. Father, if it is possible, remove this cup away from me. But then he said that, yet not my will, but yours be done. We understand that the divinity of Christ did not alleviate, make him immune, remove him from human struggles and temptations. Even he was tempted to drift away from the will of the Father. Tempted. Now understand that temptation is not sin. Yielding to temptation is sin. A lot of people think that temptation itself is sin. No, temptation is not sin. Yielding to temptation is sin. Christ was tempted, but he did not yield to the temptation. Joseph was tempted, but he did not yield to the temptation. David was tempted, and he yielded to the temptation, therefore he committed sin. Christ faced many temptations, but he did not yield to those temptations. Stephen Cole, one great, one, one of the faithful expositors of our time, he gives a very good understanding on this. He says that in this, in this temptation that Christ has faced, Christ was like Adam and Eve before the fall. How were Adam and Eve before the fall? Perfect. And in that perfect state, they chose to commit sin. Even Christ was like them. Perfect human like Adam and Eve. And yet, they sinned. But Christ did not sin. Temptation had to come to Jesus from without. Not from within. So the first thing we see that is Christ was holy and blameless. And second, we see that Christ's temptations was genuine. It was not a fake. And third, we see that his victory over temptations was real in his humanity. Now, here is what I want to argue here. He conquered temptations not because he was God. Are you understanding what I'm saying? He conquered temptations not because he was God. He conquered temptations just like a human can conquer temptations. And that's a great encouragement to us. That's where people go to the other extreme. And that is exactly what Hebrews 4.15 says here. What we have read. One who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Yet without sin. He chose not to sin against God. He conquered those temptations. He ran away from yielding to the temptations. And because of that we can... Look up to him. Now this is what I would like to state before you. Christ was like us in flesh and blood. Christ was like us in facing temptations in every respect. But Christ was unlike us in conquering temptations. What does it mean? He doesn't need to temptations like we do. He conquered temptations by the grace of the living God. So please understand brothers and sisters. His temptations were real. He faced the temptations just as we are. Now hear this carefully. He faced the temptations in every respect as we are. And hear this other fact. He conquered temptations just as we must conquer. 
He conquered temptations just as we must conquer temptations. Then what role did Dee play? Again, to quote Grudem, he gives a beautiful, fantastic, wise answer to that. You know what he said? The moral strength of his divine nature was there as a sort of backdrop. It was a, you know, um, it was just a backdrop. It was just there at the backdrop. It was not the driving force. It was just a backdrop that would have prevented him from sinning. But he did not hear this. He did not rely on the strength of his divine nature to make it easier for him to face temptations. Now this is where a lot of people fail to understand. He did not depend on his deity to face temptations. No, he faced the temptations as a human. But yet at the backdrop was the divinity, but the driving force was not the divinity of Christ. As a human, he faced the temptations and he conquered temptations. In the same book, it says how we conquered. How we conquered temptations. And this has been a great encouragement to me. This is what I should learn to do in my temptations. Where did Christ run his temptation? Did he say, temptation has no power over me. I can easily uh, conquer it. He didn't say that. You see the intensity of the words in Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7. In Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7. In the days of his flesh, which is the incarnation, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Do you understand the meaning of loud cries and tears? You know when people do that? When someone dies. That is the closest person. Your child may die and your close spouse may die. Then you will loudly cry. You don't worry about anyone who is watching over you or not. You just loudly cry and shed tears. And the other time is when you go through some kind of physical pain, then you will have that loud cry and tears. You just examine yourself. Did you ever face this? Jesus faced it when he faced the temptation. Now what did he do? Instead of sitting alone and having self-pity, oh, I am facing this temptation. Instead of sitting in anxiety and facing temptation, he knew that he could do nothing by himself. The only thing that he could do is this. With loud cries and tears to him. To God the Father who was able to save him from death. He was not in isolation. He was not spending time with disciples. You know some of us do when you are not in a good state of mood. Maybe if I am with people that would alleviate some kind of misery. So he was spending time with disciples in order to comfort himself. Or he was all alone in self-pity comforting himself. No! That's the reason you and I are weak. He went to God the Father and he fell down on the ground and he was crying. Tears were rolling down. Sweat was dropping like the blood. And he was with loud cries praying to the Father, have mercy on me and strengthen me. Do you know what it is to pray like this? Did he ever shed tears in prayer? Did he ever loudly cry in prayer? Many of us don't know that experience. What we need to understand then, you know, what the Bible says is that, and he was heard because of his reverence. He was heard. So what we need to understand here, brothers and sisters, yes, Christ was divine, but his temptations were real as human, and depending on the Father, just like you and I should be doing, he conquered temptations. 
It was not easy for him either. Now when you read this, again I'm telling you, if you read this verse carefully, you should get a doubt. What is doubt? Because I read critically, you know, I, I am a guy who, critical thinker, I read a lot of details a lot. I was wondering, and he was hurt because of his reverence. Where did God hear him? He did die. He did face death. He did face the agony. It says that he cried out and to the one who is able to save him from death and he was hurt. Doesn't this confuse us? Where was he at? He went to cross. He faced the pain. He died. Now what did it mean? The Bible says and he was hurt. Acts 2, 31 to 32 clarifies that. That's the reason we need to. The Bible is the best commentary of the Bible. <laughs> scripture interprets scripture. One of the principles of Bible interpretation. What is the father saving from death? Acts 2, 31 to 32 says, He, Christ, was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. He was not decayed. It says that this Jesus God raised up and of that we all are witnesses. So how did Christ, how did God save him from death? Not from experiencing death, from, but from decaying in death. He raised his body. Christ was the only person in the entire history of the world whose body was raised physically. None of the body was raised physically after he died. None. There were people whose spirit went to the Father in heaven, but Christ was the only person whose body was raised physically. And what is interesting here is that also, Hebrews 5, 8 to 9 says that, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now this is very interesting. Hebrews 5, 8 to 9 says that, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now what is interesting here is also this. In his humanity, he had to grow in obedience. Now hear this carefully. When the Bible says he learned obedience, doesn't mean that he was disobedient. So he had to learn obedience through suffering. No, that's not what it means. As we grow up, Christ had to grow up one step to another step, from obedience to another obedience to another obedience and to another obedience. It speaks about Christ's progressive growth in obedience. It doesn't speak that Christ was ever disobedient. And it says here that how did he learn obedience? By shaking his head when he heard us say, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. As many of us do, don't That's how we learn obedience. Do you remember what I shared in Deuteronomy 8? When God led Israelites through suffering, through wilderness, to find out the condition of their heart, they proved themselves disobedient. When Christ went through suffering, he manifested obedience. He didn't manifest disobedience. And because of that, he became the perfect source of atonement for the sins of people. The cross was the test of his obedience, and at the same time, the cross was a test of his perfect source for being the savior of the sinners. Hear this carefully, my dear brothers and sisters. True obedience is learned under suffering, not apart from it. And all of us here, all of us, God takes us step by step with every kind of suffering to show who we are on the outside on the inside, 
And what is on the inside comes outside. You may sit here and say, Lord, I love you more than anyone. Child is gone. You get into three, four months of depression. Never come out. Why did God do this to me? And then you may also be tempted to give up your faith in God. What does it show? Do you love him more than anyone? <laughs> People, be careful when you say those big heroic dialogues to God. It doesn't take it easy. It tests it through. We should better you tell God what is transparent. Lord, this is who am I on the inside. Have mercy on me and help me to reach the stage, O oh Lord. Don't speak heroic words like Peter. Lord, even if, even if people kill me, I'm not going to deny you. Is it Peter? Was he genuine? Yes, he was not faking. But he was emotional rather than rational. The interesting thing about Peter is, even after Christ told him that you will deny me, he was pointing to Jesus that you are a liar, I am right. Man, when God speaks something about us, believe it. <laughs> Don't try to argue against him. You will never prevail. And when Peter was tempted, not even once, second, third, three times he said, who is Jesus? I, I never know him. What are you talking about? What happened to this man? If he had believed in Jesus, is it Jesus? I will be denying you three times. Lord, please save me. Have mercy on me. Protect me. Give me strength. What you say is true. I am depraved. I am sinful in my heart. I can't do that. If you can say that, have mercy on me. If he had said that, that would have been better for him. Rather than acting smart, that Jesus is speaking something not right and is right. Better be careful, brothers and sisters. Suffering tests our obedience. Every time we go through suffering, we only think about deliverance, deliverance, deliverance. Yes, pray for deliverance. But most importantly, think about what is God testing you in this suffering? What is he testing you? And in every testing of the suffering, you know what is it that God wants to see? That we love the Lord, our God, with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength, and that He is supreme in our lives, and there is no place for anyone or anything that reigns us. And that is very, very difficult for us to face it. So, Jesus is a great model for us. He is a model of suffering. And he's a model for us also to persevere in suffering so that we can thrive and become what God wants us to be. So the encouragement for us, dear brothers and sisters, is that please don't undermine the humanity of Christ. See that his humanity was 100% perfect. His struggles and full force of temptations was 100% perfect. It was no faking, real. And that is a great source of encouragement to us that if Christ was human like me, if Christ could suffer like me, but that's not the encouragement, please. His humanity and his facing temptation is not the greatest encouragement. The greatest encouragement is that he conquered them. And he calls us, you can be like me. You can be like me. How can we be like him? I see that I have already passed through a lot of time. I don't think so. I, have, I can cover this the next in 10 minutes because I know myself. So I, I better end here in 50 minutes rather than <clears throat> delving into the sympathy of Christ, which is my second thing. The sympathy 
of Christ, how Christ is sympathetic towards us in weaknesses, and how we should be drawn closer to him. That would be my second part next week. Shall we all rise on our feet? You know, at times I read uh, some secular books, and you know what is the blasphemous statements that I read when I read them? Those authors say, look within and realize how great you are and believe in yourself and thrive and excel. You are a little sovereign. Look within you. And that's very blasphemous because when you look within you, you don't find how great you are. You see how worst you are. <laughs> and there is nothing there. What the Bible says is, look above to the one who was stainless, blameless, holy, righteous, just separated from sinners, the one who lived a life above reproach. He is the only hope for us. It is not inside that there is the answer. The answer is on the outside, above, who has passed through the heavens and seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is our great high priest and hope. So at this time, brothers and sisters, if you are disgraced with your weaknesses, Look to him and ask the Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for being a great example. Thank you for knowing what it is to go through temptations. And give me the grace to conquer them like you did. May not be discouraged. May not be depressed. May not feel helpless and hopeless. What Christ had done, I can do because of his gospel. That he lived and died and rose again from the dead. The hope is not in our ability, but in the ability of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the only hope. And if anyone here who is lost in sin, never repented, never believed, but lived a nominal Christian life, I call upon you today that please do repent of your sins and look to the one who died on the cross for your sin and rose from the dead. And for those believers who have believed and wrestling with sin and weaknesses and keep falling and discouraged and sometimes we think there is no hope for me. I don't think so that I can become what God wants me to be. Don't lose your hope, brothers and sisters. Persevere. Look to the gospel. Look to Christ. He passed through the heavens. He lived a blameless life. He faced temptation like us and he conquered sin and temptations and he is able to help us. He doesn't watch us as we wrestle. He comes to our help. And how beautiful the song that says that Jesus is kind and strong and we should run to him. Just like the way, remember those words, how he cried with loud cries and tears. Let's run to the Father and cry, pour your heart. Oh, what beautiful, glorious moment that is. So many people wrestle alone. Or wrestle with people but they don't go in solitude and pour their hearts with loud cries and tears and cry out to the Father. Cry people. Learn to cry in life. Not before people, not alone, but before the Father in heaven who is able to save you the way he did to his son. He is able. He is almighty. He is sufficient for us. Heavenly Father, 
Thank you for this encouragement to weak, struggling, suffering, sinners and saints like us. Who Lord, we are not all sufficient. We are all weak. The only sufficient God is you. And we come before you with all the encouragement you have given us in verse 14. That Christ has passed through the temptation. Christ has faced and experienced what it is to be a human. And what it is to be weak and face temptations. Thank you for that glorious life that he lived on this earth. And finished his work. And he said on the cross, it is finished. Oh Lord, that is a great hope for us. And we can live. We can conquer. We can be strong. Not because we have the ability, but because you have sent your son to die for our sins and raised him from the dead so that we would walk in his footsteps. The problem is not that we are weak, but because we don't run to God who is strong. The problem is not that we are sinful, but we don't cry, repent, seek your face earnestly in our weaknesses. Thank you for encouraging us. Teach us to pray like your son, O Lord. Teach us to be desperate in our prayers. Not concerned about polished, furnished words with great sentences and punctuations and how we, how we can impress you with our language. That's not what it is. Essentially, it is about the heart's brokenness and contriteness and desperation crying out to you, Abba, Father. And we need you, O Heavenly Father. We plead with you. And create in us the desperate need and we pray that you help us never to be self-sufficient but always find our sufficiency in Christ. Lord, you save the lost here if there are any and encourage the saved here and pray that we would never be the same in our weaknesses and temptations knowing that we are not alone. We have a great high priest who lived like us. He conquered unlike us and we can look to him and live this one short life in this world with great fruitfulness because of him, because of him. And we thank you for the cross. We thank you for Christ. Thank you for this great high priest, our sympathizer and savior. In the name of our Lord Jesus, we offer this prayer with thanksgiving. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the message. We believe you have been greatly encouraged in your heart. Stephen David also writes articles that are relevant to today's generation. You may read them on his blog www.messageforourage.blogspot.com I repeat www.messageforourage.blogspot.com you may also email him at cstephendavid at gmail.com. I repeat, c-s-t-e-p-h-e-n-d-a-v-i-d at g-m-a-i-l dot c-o-m. Grace and peace be to you.